You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. We come now to the story of the unraveling of logical positivism, its downfall. It was a long time in coming. It was incipient, perhaps, maybe even in the very beginnings of positivism with all the efforts to keep revising the criterion and the way in which you're going to confirm scientific claims. But as we moved into the 50s, late 50s, early 60s, the whole project began to um, develop leaks, you might say. I could divide these into possibly four areas. The first one had to do with the status of that criterion of meaning itself, the verification criterion of meaning. More importantly, maybe, or more devastating, was an assault, a kind of philosophical assault on verificationism and positivism from Willard Van Orman Quine, a philosopher at Harvard, very well respected, very influential. Quine was not a religious believer. He was a naturalist himself, skeptical about many moral, religious, even metaphysical claims, and yet he felt that the positivist program could not succeed. A third difficulty, equally as serious, I think, from the point of view of the positivists, was an assault from science itself, in a way, or at least from philosophers of science, who argued that this verificationist program could not really capture, could not justify what was going on, what was actually going on in the sciences themselves, could not show why scientific theories were themselves acceptable. It was too strict in a way even for science itself as it turned out. Finally, there was a suggestion about the uses of language that uh, as philosophers had turned their attention much more to analyzing terms in the language rather than to the things themselves as it were, to uh, looking at our language about things, there was a much greater awareness of the fact that our language isn't always used just to make assertions or claims about things. After all, we, all, we use our language in many other ways as well and it came to seem that this was a just far too simplistic a picture of language, that we should turn, we should in fact uh, take up a wider, a more generous study of the uses of our language. So first, the status of the criterion of verification. That criterion of meaning is itself not exactly self-evident. It's not a tautology, it's not true just in virtue of the meaning of its terms. To say that a statement's meaningful, if and only if it can be empirically verified or falsified, or falsified in principle, or went through many versions. But any one of the versions you pick, the principle isn't self-evidently true, nor is it subject itself to empirical verification. The criterion, that statement itself, cannot be tested by any empirical means. It just would have to be, you might say it's a statement of, of a higher order, something that's supposed to govern our discourse. And initially, People could be temporarily, I suppose, satisfied with that. That was the suggestion of Bertrand Russell very early on, that the criterion was a second-order kind of claim about claims, and therefore it didn't itself need to be tested. It didn't need to meet its own requirements, as it were, for meaningfulness. But still, you wonder, well, how can that claim be justified, even if it is a second-order claim? It's a claim, and it's a claim that seems to make sense. It's meaningful. And so why is this one verification criterion, this one sentence considered meaningful when a lot of other such claims are ruled out as utter nonsense. Now initially of course it was mainly religious believers and ethicists and so forth who were complaining but 
Atheists and agnostics, of course, had also been told that their claims were utter nonsense. As A.J. Ayer had put it uh, very early on, it's not just that belief in God, to say that God exists is meaningless, to say God doesn't exist or there's no God is equally meaningless. Neither of these claims could be empirically verified or falsified. So they're both nonsense and those who wanted to defend the non-existence of God were equally bothered by the statement that they weren't making any sense at all, they weren't even making a, a claim, much less a true claim. So finally the suggestion eventually anyway within the positivist camp was that this criterion maybe should just be treated as a recommendation, a good way of proceeding. But if you just take it as a recommendation, of course, then it's no longer universal or absolutely certain. In fact, it seems pretty optional. Why not choose a different criterion of what's meaningful? A.J. Ayer writes in 1959, it seems fairly clear that what they, talking about the members of the Vienna Circle now, notice he distances himself from them now, what they were in fact doing was to adopt the verification principle as a convention. But why should this convention be accepted? The most that has been proved is that metaphysical statements do not fall into the same category as the laws of logic, or as scientific hypotheses, or as historical narratives, or judgments of perception, or any other common sense descriptions of the natural world. Surely it does not follow they are neither true nor false, still less that they are nonsensical. This is an introduction to a collection of essays he edited called Logical Positivism. So he's moved quite a distance from his early days in 1959, suggesting that this criterion wasn't going to work out as ruling things out as utter nonsense and so forth, but just adopting it as a kind of convention. But obviously if it's just a convention, then we're free to reject it, and many people took that option, opted out of the verification criterion. A second attack on positivism came from philosophy of Willard Van Orman Quine and others, uh, notably Wilfred Sellers. But Quine was probably the better known, at least in the beginning. He wrote an attack on what he called the two dogmas of the current form of empiricism, which was logical positivism. In the first place, he argued that what we're committed to, what kinds of entities or, or objects we're committed to, depends on whatever the best scientific theories commit us to. So he himself, in a sense, is still operating within this paradigm of science is the only way to know about things. But he wants to argue that using a term doesn't necessarily commit us to the thing named by the term. So if we can rephrase or express our sentences in such a way that they don't commit us to the existence of those things, then um, it would probably be a good idea to do that. We should try to pare down our ontology, to pare down the number of things we think are real to the minimum. It's a version again of Occam's razor coming back in, that the simplest theory should be preferred. In fact, Quine put it himself that he had a preference for desert landscapes as opposed to tropical forests, I guess. So we're not committed to imaginary creatures like Pegasus just because we say things like Pegasus has wings, because we could always rephrase that as the horse described in this Greek myth was said to have wings and so forth. And we're not committed to the existence of, of abstract things like universal concepts just by saying something like beets are vegetables. We can rephrase that, Quine thought, this way for any object, if it's a beet, it's a vegetable. So you're making claim about things, but not about something general like beetness or vegetability or something like that. And we can decide, he thought, which terms to use and which entities to allow according to various criteria. In other words, it wasn't just one criterion for choosing which language to use. 
it would be you use the one that's best suited to your purpose overall or to practical considerations. So adopting a kind of scheme or uh, language or whatever would be based on various kinds of criteria. For Quine, of course, he thinks it's always going to be what's best suited for use in the sciences. So his advice goes like this. We adopt at least insofar as we are reasonable. Uh, note the, the normative element there, he can't resist. The simplest conceptual scheme into which the disordered fragments of raw experience can be fitted or arranged. Our ontology is determined once we have fixed upon the overall conceptual scheme, which is to accommodate science in the broadest sense. So he thinks all we have to do is find which way of talking best serves scientific enterprise, and then we'll know what we're committed to. So Quine here retains the positivist disdain for non-scientific claims. He smuggles some of his own preferences in here, telling us the data we need to accommodate are the uh, presumably atomistic fragments of raw experience and so forth. So it talks about the disordered fragments of raw experience can be fitted into these schemes and so forth. And that reasonable people apply the test of simplicity, that is they apply Occam's razor to their theories. Still, this does allow for, for pretty deep changes within scientific theories, rather than insisting that science develop in a strictly cumulative way on analogy with logic or with geometry. That is, Russell's kind of mathematical paradigm of of the sciences has been set aside. On the other hand, Quine is a pragmatist. He's, he thought of himself as in the tradition of, uh, of Dewey and William James and other American pragmatists. So that even when he says we should pick the best scientific theories, what he means there is not those necessarily that are most likely to be true, but they're best for our purposes. They enable us to do the things we want to do. Whether they actually reflect the nature of the real is not, he thinks, not of interest and probably something we can't answer. Now, one of the dogmas of empiricism that Quine very much wanted to attack or to bring down was the distinction between analytic and synthetic claims. The verificationists had very carefully distinguished between analytic statements that are true in virtue of the meaning of their terms, so they just are, they're analytic in the sense that they only analyze the concept itself. A bachelor for instance, is an unmarried male. There the predicate is an unmarried male simply unpacks the meaning of bachelor. So we don't have to know anything about whether there are any bachelors or married or unmarried males in the world in order to know that a bachelor is an unmarried male. It's an analytic claim. They distinguish those from synthetic, what they call synthetic statements, distinction that goes all the way back to Immanuel Kant, before him, I think, to Hume. Uh, the synthetic claims are supposed to be true in virtue of their connection to the facts, to the empirical facts or to experience. So analytic statements on the verificationist criteria, and analytic statements are meaningful, but they don't tell us anything about the world. Synthetic statements can be meaningful anyway because they are trying to tell us about the world, but of course they're only meaningful if they're empirically verifiable. Now Quine rejects this distinction because he thinks we can't really determine which statements are analytic and which ones are synthetic. He says the analytic claims are supposed to be the ones we can't give up, we can't surrender them. They're necessarily true and so forth, or reason requires them. But Quine suggests that there are really almost no claims he can think of that we couldn't give up if we were willing to adjust the rest of our conceptual scheme to accommodate that. So his argument is the effort to show some things that are true just in virtue of their meanings, of their terms, and so forth, is doomed to failure. That meanings of terms aren't that fixed, aren't that determinate, and so forth. 
so that it's partly a judgment call which things to treat as analytic or as fixed and which ones to treat as adjustable and so on. So he offers in a way a much more coherentist account of what's the best overall conceptual scheme. Finally, Quine suggests there are a lot of problems with this project of confirming individual empirical claims. We've already seen that the suggestion in um, some philosophers of religion that we should instead evaluate views as an overall hypothesis or in kind of larger chunks as it were. And Carnap himself, Rudolf Carnap, one of the members of the Vienna Circle and others after him, had realized you can't just match every term in the language to a corresponding sense datum. Our experiences are complex, sense data are too private, too atomistic, too isolated from everything else. You might recall the advent of Gestalt psychology about this time, and uh, the Gestalt psychologists were arguing that uh, what we perceive is a kind of whole picture in a way, a whole image that's very complicated. We don't just perceive individual atoms, as it were. Now, if we move to sentences as a whole, instead of individual terms mapped onto individual things in the world, if we or sense data, if we move to the sentence as a whole, and that's the thing we're going to match to experience, we still find that statements that are not analytically true might still not be verifiable in any way by some individual concrete distinct experience out there. There's no one thing you can point to that would either with kind of absolute certainty verify or falsify that statement. It's part of maybe of a more general theory and it's the theory as a whole that is either confirmed or disconfirmed by the data. So Quine's proposal was that you can't really test individual statements one by one for their empirical soundness. You can't even test, he thought, individual scientific theories because he thought for any one scientific theory, again, you could adjust it. If you gave it up, you could adjust the rest of your theories to accommodate that. So his view was that you have to analyze the view as a whole. In a way, you have to just come up with an entire comprehensive view, and that is what is going to be the thing that will explain your experience. So he says, science isn't like a pile of rocks. It's much more like a web, where if you just hear, of course, it's going to have ramifications over here, just as a spider can fill fly or another bug landing on any part of the web. And um, so he says the unit of empirical significance is the whole of science, which for him is the whole thing. Science is the whole thing. So you, you have to test the conceptual scheme as a whole ball of wax, as it were. And if it suits your purposes and so forth, then you stick with it. If it doesn't, you adjust various aspects of it depending on your needs. Now, not everybody in the philosophical community bought all of Quine's arguments here. Some people thought you could still defend a version of the analytic and synthetic distinction, that you could still, in fact, confirm and disconfirm smaller units of language and so on. But Quine had a, a large influence, I think, on the philosophical community. He wrote some very uh, carefully reasoned essays on efforts to translate sentences into another language or, or to understand languages that we've never encountered before somebody's use of language, he says, oh, we often assume that when they say a word, they mean the same thing we would, or pretty much the same things. There's a rabbit running across, and they point to it and say, Gavagai. That was his uh, quaint example. We think, well, they mean by Gavagai what we mean by rabbit. But he said they might have a very different way of carving up the world for all we know. And so just because they 
utter this word as the rabbit goes by doesn't mean that they divide the world into individuals with properties and so forth. Maybe they divide it differently. However plausible or implausible that was, it certainly caught on. It had a, a large influence, I think, on the philosophical community. Maybe even more important than the philosophical attacks offered by uh, Quine and others was the fact that verificationism turned out to be too strict for science itself. It turns out that not all scientific claims have some kind of direct observational content to them, some cash value, you might say, in terms of experience. If we want to confirm, say, the existence of quarks or something like that, some bizarre subatomic particles, dark matter, black holes, we have theories that will lend support to the claim that there are such things as black holes or quarks. But it's not as though you can just pick out a quark just like that. It's not as though the term quark is going to match up with some obvious item in our direct, our raw experience, as uh, Quine would put it. If these things exist, they would explain certain effects, certain observations and so forth, but they themselves are not exactly observed. And uh, to make matters worse, there are other hypotheses that would also explain the same data. So choosing one over another one is not just a matter of accommodating the data. There's got to be other criteria that are somehow in the background here, other canons of rationality and, and rational choice in science. There's a current theory right now in physics that's been offered by serious way by some physicists called the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. And according to this theory, we live in a world that's parallel to many other, countless other worlds that are, are running parallel in the sense they're more or less running a, alongside of ours, you might say, but independently. And when a quantum event occurs, a particle has escaped from our world and, and it reappears, it disappears here, reappears in a parallel world. And other particles disappear from that world, reappear in ours, and so forth. Now, how would somebody verify this theory, even in principle? Can you think of any way of empirically verifying the claim that there are these other parallel worlds? If there are parallel worlds, it certainly explains certain things in quantum mechanics. But if not, then we have to offer other explanations. And obviously, not every scientist has bought into this interpretation and so forth. So verification turns out to be much more complicated than the early positivists realized. The second problem in science had to do with the normative dimension of, of the natural laws. Uh, this was brought to our attention, especially by the work of Carl Hempel. Science claims not just that you know, a particular little cup of half and half will dissolve in your coffee, but that cream dissolves in coffee, generally speaking. Half and half dissolves in coffee. The law holds universally for coffee you haven't even made yet, whether it's Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts or just plain Folgers. It will always work. It's a law of science that cream dissolves in coffee. Now, we saw already that you can't verify that simply by individual experiences because you're trying to justify not just an individual claim about this cup of coffee, you're trying to justify the universal claim. So you need to be able to show that these kind of universal claims which the scientists go on making aren't just nonsense, that they can somehow survive the verification criterion of meaning. So if, if we say instead, okay, we don't have to be able to fully confirm or fully verify that law, you just have to be able to confirm it, right? To give evidence that would support it. And so every time your, your half and half dissolves, that supports the general law. We can also imagine scenarios that would undermine it, would, would disconfirm it. I mean, you might say just out and out falsify it, but of course it's not that simple. I mean, suppose that 
somebody is at a restaurant and they open their thing of half and half and dump it in the coffee and it doesn't dissolve. It floats around in little beads or something on the top. Sometimes it does that because it's bad, okay, so that's one possibility, but, but it looks really weird, let's say. It doesn't look like, it doesn't behave at all like cream normally does in coffee. It's very unlikely that you're going to think that the scientific law there has been falsified. You're going to assume, okay, well, there's something wrong here. I mean, maybe it's not really half and half after all. I remember one restaurant that used to hand out little things that said coffee whitener, and then you didn't really know what was in them. It whitened your coffee. could be paint for all we know. So you don't know. You say, well, maybe it's not cream. It would be a while before you took that to be some kind of definitive disproof of the scientific law. And if we move to things that would just tend to confirm or disconfirm, then I think we allow in many other claims that the positivists wanted to eliminate. After all, some experiences would tend to confirm the existence of a loving God. Some might tend to count against it. Uh, some people think the very absence of kind of very public evidence for the existence of God is a fact that disconfirms his existence. This has occasioned a, a debate over the significance of what's called the hiddenness of God or divine hiddenness. So if we allow in just what would tend to confirm or disconfirm, then of course we no longer find that just scientific claims are meaningful. Many other claims can be meaningful too. The third aspect here of the scientific critique was the move toward considering the scientific theories as a whole as what's fundamental, not, just the, not even just the scientific laws, the individual law-like statements. And this follows one of Quine's points, that we can't just test our scientific theories in a piecemeal way. Scientific discovery is often guided by certain metaphors or models that are themselves not exactly empirical claims, but are they, they suggest ways to handle anomalies, or they suggest ways to decide between overall theories, which one to adopt. After all, the data of science, the observations, have to be described in language in some way. So this already lets in an element of interpretation. And that was already, as we saw, a kind of problem within the positivist camp itself. Finally, we have Thomas Kuhn's criticism here. Thomas Kuhn wrote The Structure of Scientific Revolutions in 1962 and argued that there are many other elements that go into major shifts in scientific theories other than just purely rational or empirical criteria that um, many scientists are loyal to the colleagues they're working with, or they've invested a lot in terms of time and money in a certain kind of theory. Maybe that's what the government is interested in funding. I mean, there are all these other sort of sociological factors that affect one's research. So Kuhn's book started a very lively debate about the objectivity of the sciences, the natural sciences themselves, the impact of tradition, various cultural factors, and so forth, on which theories are going to prevail. And uh, just like Quine, Kuhn suggested, well, sometimes what prevails is decided on pragmatic grounds or other grounds, even that the criteria themselves for evaluating what's the most rational theory, those criteria can evolve over time. And finally, there was this um, a turn to, in addition to the difficulties within science itself, there was a kind of increasing awareness that language gets used for many purposes, not just for making assertions. It's not just used in science, in other words. And that, it, that language can be meaningful even when we're using it in some other way. We understand perfectly well what's being said to us or what's being, not just what's being asserted, but what's, what the person is, wants us to do or whatever, even in the case where we're not just making assertions. Even in the case of, of moral 
or normative language, for instance, we're not always just doing one thing. We're not always just asserting or making a claim. We're not always expressing an emotion. We're not always prescribing a behavior. Uh, we might be warning, exhorting, drawing inferences, making comparisons, questioning, and so forth. So the person who says, I wouldn't put my tongue on that frozen flagpole if I were you, isn't really exactly making an assertion. They're not just making a claim about what they would or wouldn't do. What exactly are they doing? Well, something else, but the person they're talking to usually gets the point. They understand it. Now, so in the end, in a way, you might say it wasn't that the criterion, the positivist project, was overthrown by people who had a much wider conception of things that were meaningful, although that was part of it. Uh, there was a critique uh, internal, really, to this project, which began to recognize the many other uses of language that also seemed to be perfectly legitimate and perfectly meaningful. I think the main, in my opinion, the main thing that, that brought the end of logical positivism was its failure to be able to capture what's going on in science itself. The, science was their god in a way. Um, they were very committed to science as the solution, the answer, the rational way to proceed. Um, they wanted to be able to come up with a, a philosophical theory of meaningfulness and of empirical support and so forth that would uh, make sure that the sciences get to do their thing and everybody else shuts up. And they were never really quite able to pull off that project. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.